called from a retirement, which I had supposed was to continue for the residue of my life, to fill the chief executive office of this great and free nation, I appear before you, fellow citizens, to take the oaths which the Constitution prescribes as a necessary qualification for the performance of its duties, and in obedience to the custom coeval with our government and what I believe to be your expectations, I proceed to present to you a summary of the principles which will govern me in the discharge of the duties which I shall be called upon to perform. With these words, William Henry Harrison, newly inaugurated ninth president of the United States of America, began his inaugural speech on March 4th. 1841. Welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. In this episode, we are going to discuss this inauguration speech. Let's go ahead and start by dispelling the myth that Harrison was long-winded. As some of you may know from a trivia question you've come across, Harrison's speech was, to date, the longest inaugural speech in history. It was 8,445 words long and lasted for somewhere close to an hour and a half to two hours. As no one had a stopwatch and there's, of course, no video to refer back to, we have to rely on the observations of spectators, and those vary a little. All agree, though, that it was a very long speech as inaugurals go, and I doubt that, given modern short attention spans, that it's a record that will be broken anytime soon. However, at the time, speeches this long were not unusual. Whig speakers on the campaign trail in 1840 were noted as regularly speaking for three hours, and with Senator William C. Reeves described as delivering, quote, speeches rarely under four hours duration. Why then was Harrison's inaugural considered long, even by contemporaries? As Harrison admitted in his speech in Dayton, quote, I'm not a professional speaker, nor a studied orator. But I am an old soldier and a farmer, and as my sole object is to speak what I think, you will excuse me if I do it in my own way. This speech illustrates that fact, as well as why some may have felt it too lengthy. On the campaign trail, speeches were considered a form of entertainment. People would take a break from their daily work and go to political rallies that were, in essence, public carnivals. Folks could ramble on while people were half-listening and, just as we've all done, listen for cues as to when to clap or jeer or respond, however appropriate. That was on the campaign trail. The inaugural speech is the starting point from which the new president outlines his or her agenda to the nation. In 1841, it was even more crucial than today as, without the benefit, and sometimes detriment, of modern mass communication, This could be the first speech from the candidate nationally distributed. There were different expectations for the inaugural speech than there were campaign speeches, and the live audience was different. While members of the general public were present as well, Congress, incoming cabinet members, the diplomatic corps, and political leaders from across the nation descended upon Washington to be the first to hear the president's intentions for the coming term. They expected more than just a campaign speech. Some contemporary commentators, at least, felt that the unique speech hit the right note. Senator William A. Graham of North Carolina, who should be noted is a Whig, felt that the speech was delivered, quote, in a clear, bold, and strong voice, and wrote to his wife that he had, quote, no hesitation in believing that it will be acceptable to the whole nation. Though he may have worked on it some prior, 
Harrison prepared his speech during his sojourn in Virginia and presented it to Daniel Webster, who by that point had become his right-hand man in Washington. Webster was appalled and immediately set about on revisions. The legend goes that Webster, who had prepared a draft inauguration speech of his own for Harrison, was frustrated in Harrison's determination to demonstrate his learning in his draft, which was described by Webster as having, quote, entered largely into Roman history and had a great deal to say about the states of antiquity and the Roman proconsuls, and of having, quote, no more to do with the affairs of the American government and people than a chapter in the Quran. After an arduous day of revising the speech, Webster returned to his boarding house, where his landlady, Mrs. Seaton, expressed that she was, quote, sorry to see you looking so worried and tired. I hope nothing has gone wrong. I really hope nothing has happened. To which Webster replied, quote, you would think that something had happened if you knew what I have done. I have killed seventeen Roman proconsuls as dead as smelts every one of them. Ultimately, it's difficult to say how much of that is true. But looking at the actual speech, while a good deal of Harrison comes out in it, as there are some similarities to his previous speeches, there also seems to be some financing to suggest Webster's oratorical influence. The last remaining Roman consul in speech shows up in the second paragraph, which brings up the point that showed up often in Harrison's campaign speeches about the dangers of making promises on the campaign trail as circumstances may dictate different action while in office. If you don't already have a copy of the inaugural speech, but would like to follow along, you can go to www.presidency.ucsb.edu, which is the link for the American Presidency Project. I'll put a direct link to the inaugural on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, blueberry without the E's, dot com. Or you can use the search feature on the American Presidency Project website to locate the speech. Found it? Good. Naturally, I won't read the entire speech here unless, of course, you're into hour-and-a-half-long speeches. But let's pick up on the third paragraph, beginning, quote, Although the fiat. About midway down the paragraph, there's an interesting section in which Harrison states, quote, The outline of principles to govern and measures to be adopted by an administration not yet begun will soon be exchanged for immutable history, and I shall stand either exonerated by my countrymen or classed with the mass of those who promised that they might deceive and flattered with the intention to betray. This excerpt is an acknowledgment of the possibility of failure in his presidency. It's something that had been turned to before by both Washington and Jefferson in their first inaugural addresses. Then he discusses, quote, the dangerous temptations to which I shall be exposed from the magnitude of power which it had been the pleasure of the people to commit to my hands. This is the first mention of what will become a common theme throughout the speech, the abuse of power. While we think of this more in a post-Watergate context nowadays, Abuse of power is a common theme in American history. Indeed, the reason behind the original Articles of Confederation was to prevent the consolidation of power in the hands of either one person or a small group. But such a decentralized government proved ineffective. Likewise, there was a fear of a standing army, which led the army to be spread out in the frontiers rather than consolidated in the more heavily populated areas along the East Coast. The next paragraph focuses on the power and the rights of the citizens. 
It goes into a bit of a ramble with classical illusions compared to constitutional theory, before finally arriving to the point of addressing that, quote, disputes have arisen as to the amount of power which it, meaning the Constitution, has actually granted or was intended to grant. This is his segue into a discussion of the function of branches of government with a focus on the legislative and executive branches. This is where he starts to pull some of these ideas together. He states, quote, But the great danger to our institutions does not appear to me to be in a usurpation by the government of power, not granted by the people, but by the accumulation in one of the departments of that which was assigned to others. This line would have likely perked up some ears in the audience, because they would have been more familiar with Whig campaign attacks in the election, and this would have had a familiar ring. The last sentence of this paragraph, which is a long one, admittedly, is worth having a read. It begins with, quote, It would not become of me to say, and ends with, quote, Power placed in my hands. To paraphrase, this lengthy sentence is Harrison saying that he wouldn't say that the executive branch had gained too much power under the Jackson and Van Buren administrations, but that he planned to restore the government to the original vision of the founders. Now, he didn't directly call anyone out yet, but he did say that he was determined, quote, to arrest the progress of the, quote, tendency, if it really exists, towards, quote, the tendency of power to increase itself in the example he listed of the executive branch. As you'll soon see, we quickly learn that there was no doubt that he felt that tendency really existed and that he had to stop it. The next paragraph repeats his one-term pledge. No backseas when you put it into the inaugural address, Mr. President, especially when you devote such a very long paragraph to it. After that tangent, he gets back to the real danger. Harrison notes that, quote, I cannot conceive that by a fair construction any or either of its, the Constitution's, provisions would be found to constitute the President a part of the legislative power. What does he mean by legislative power, you're likely asking? While he doesn't get to the point just yet, just know that he does not mean, quote, the power to recommend, since, although enjoined as a duty upon him, it is a privilege which he, the president, holds in common with every other citizen. Thus, Harrison feels that the president can propose legislation till he or she is blue in the face. His problem is when the president goes beyond that. The next paragraph asserts that the veto is not inherently a president exerting undue legislative power, as the veto can be overridden by Congress. However, it's in the motive that this power can be abused. Harrison argues that the veto was intended only for legislation with a, quote, want of conformity to the Constitution, though it does not have to be so. And indeed, he asserts that it had not been used that way by some of his predecessors. Do you feel the tension building? One can only imagine that people stood at attention when Harrison said, quote, It is preposterous to suppose that a thought could for an instant have been entertained that the president, placed at the capital in the center of the country, could better understand the wants and wishes of the people than their own immediate representatives, who spend a part of every year among them, living with them, often laboring with them, and bound to them by the triple tie of interest, duty, and affection. To assist or control Congress, then, in its ordinary legislation, could not, I conceive, have been the motive for conferring the veto power on the president. I wonder who he's talking about. Hmm, 
Well, to make it clear, he continues, quote, This argument acquires additional force from the fact of its never having been thus used by the first six presidents. Though he doesn't mention him by name, Van Buren did not veto a single item of legislation. Harrison was the ninth and hadn't done anything yet. So that leaves, you guessed it, Andrew Jackson. This was a direct attack on Andrew Jackson in the middle, well, getting towards the middle, of his inaugural address. This was unheard of. Neither Jefferson nor Jackson did this to their predecessors when taking control from the opposite party. Harrison was attacking the heart and soul of the Democratic Party in his inauguration speech. Luckily, Andrew Jackson was too old for it at this point, or I think this would have ended up in a duel. Harrison then gives two more justified reasons for using the veto at the end of the paragraph and the beginning of the next one. The veto could be used, quote, because errors had been committed from a too hasty enactment, and to ensure, quote, the security which it gives to the just and equitable action of the legislature upon all parts of the Union. Immediately following this, there is an interesting passage which I think is important to consider regarding what Harrison feels is the role of the presidency. It reads, quote, A person elected to that high office, having his constituents in every section, state, and subdivision of the Union, must consider himself bound by the most solemn sanctions to guard, protect, and defend the rights of all and of every portion, great or small, from the injustice and oppression of the rest. To those familiar with this period of history, that first part may sound familiar. It's well-articulated Jacksonian ideology. Jackson saw himself justified in taking a sometimes heavy-handed approach in pursuit of his policies because he said that he was the only person in government elected by all of the people. After just attacking him, Harrison is now at a point of agreement with Jackson. However, the second part is where we get how Whig ideology, or at least Harrison's version of it, differs from the Democratic viewpoint. Jackson saw himself as acting on the will of the majority. His will was the majority will in his mindset, as he asserts in his proclamation to the people of South Carolina during the nullification crisis, in which he reminds them that, as, quote, we are one people in the choice of president and vice president, that the people are represented in the executive branch, and warns them with, quote, the influence that a father would over his children of his, quote, confidence on your undivided support in my determination to execute the laws and to arrest by moderate and firm measures the necessity of a recourse to force. Harrison, however, is saying that the president must, quote, guard, protect, and defend the rights of all from the injustice and oppression of the rest. Part of how he sees the veto power used, and as he indicates shortly after, is, quote, to prevent the effects of combinations violative of the rights of minorities. This is not just Harrisonian, but it stems from a Jeffersonian idea articulated in Jefferson's first inaugural address. Jefferson stated, quote, all, too, will bear in mind the sacred principle that though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will, to be rightful, must be reasonable, that the minority possess their equal rights, which equal laws must protect, and to violate which would be oppression. 
Harrison then directly quotes Madison to tie his ideas back together, that it is all about, quote, the general will of the nation, but that, within this, there are limits, both for the governed and the government. While preparing to move forward with a discussion of federal-state relations, Harrison begins with a lengthy introduction section about the, quote, 50 years trial of our system of governance and how it should be judged. Acknowledging that there were naysayers and that while, quote, the result to which they looked with so much apprehension is in the way of being realized, it is obvious that they did not clearly see the mode of its accomplishment. He points out that their great fear, which was the federal government usurping the rights of state governments, had not played out and that, quote, the state authorities have amply maintained their rights. To a casual observer, our system presents no appearance of discord between the different members which compose it. Even the addition of many new ones, referring to states, has produced no jarring. But, you knew there had to be a but coming, didn't you? Quote, but there is still an undercurrent at work by which, if not seasonably checked, the worst apprehensions of our anti-federal patriots will be realized. And not only will the state authorities be overshadowed by the great increase of power in the executive department of the general government, but the character of that government, if not its designation, be essentially and radically changed. What is the great danger to the nation? What doom lurks on the horizon? What threatens to take away our rights and destroy the ideals of our beloved republic forever? To find out, dear listener, you will have to tune in next time, as we have run out of time. My original intent was to do just one episode on the inaugural speech, but considering its length, there proved to be more to discuss than could be covered with all due diligence in our standard time frame. However, I think and hope that you agree that it is important to closely look at what Harrison says in this speech to get an idea of his thoughts as he was moving into the presidency and where the nation stood on the issues of the time what was resonating and seen as important to discuss, and where we might disagree. Believe me, there are some points coming up that, with our modern sensibilities, we're likely to disagree. Until then, please feel free to send any thoughts, suggestions, questions, etc. to Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Just a reminder, if you haven't looked at it already, the blog for the podcast can be found at whhpodcast.blueberry.com. B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Thank you again so much for listening, and please join me next time to find out how Harrison is going to single-handedly save our nation in peril.